Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can find that on page 961 in your pew Bibles. We'll be reading from verses 20 to 28. Hear now the living word of Christ. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. Pray with me again. Lord Jesus, we come before you because you are Lord and you've been raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit who is the giver of life, the life-giving spirit, and now you, O Lord Jesus, give life through your word, by your spirit. And so we pray you would do that for your glory and the extension of your kingdom. In your name we pray, amen. For several years, my lovely wife sought to convince me, let's become homesteaders. When I first heard that, I thought, I'm already a homesteader because I grew up near Homestead, a neighborhood in Pittsburgh where Josh Gibson played for the Homestead Grays baseball team. No, babe, he said. Homesteading is growing food on your own land and raising animals like chickens. But babe, I've been in urban dwelling, subway riding, backpack wearing, hip-hop city slicker for over 30 years. There's no way I'm going to become a homesteader. But God <laughs> called me to Olive Street Presbyterian Church with my longtime friend and mentor, John Orlando, and the Lord provided the Brindles, also known as the Brindleites, an acre of land in Chester County. And what do you know? Now we're homesteading. And guess what? I love it. And I never want to go back. And one of the greatest joys for a farmer or new homesteaders like us is seeing the first fruits of the food that we're growing. Those first large, delicious tomatoes and onions, the hearty potatoes and corn, and even more exciting, our first egg from our chickens. 
Why was it so exciting? Because the first fruits represented the rest of the harvest. They guaranteed and pointed to the fact there's more tomatoes, more potatoes, onions, green peppers, and many, many more chicken eggs to come. The first fruits were representative of the whole harvest. And beloved, in our passage this morning, Paul makes clear that our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead, is the first fruits representative of the single resurrection harvest of the children of God. Which brings us to our main point. The resurrection of Christ began his death-destroying reign, guaranteeing our resurrection when he returns to consummate his kingdom. So we'll spend the next two weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, continuing our series on eschatology, the study of the last things, with an emphasis on the end times. And as you can see from the main point, Jesus Christ has already begun to reign as king since his resurrection. His kingdom reign has begun, but it will be consummated. It will be finalized when he returns. We'll see that our resurrection is triply guaranteed by each of these three points. It consists of God the Father putting all things under the feet of Christ. Christ's resurrection guarantees ours. Jesus' present reign guarantees death will be destroyed. And when Christ returns, he will give the kingdom back to his Father, having completed his mission. And so perhaps you're hoping for on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day, some rest and relaxation, some R&R. We have a bonus R for you this morning. Three R's, R&R&R, resurrection, reign, and return. Let's look now at our first point. The resurrection of Christ guarantees our resurrection. When Paul there in verse 20 says, Christ has been raised, he's repeating himself verbatim in verse 4. Earlier in the chapter, Paul made clear the gospel, which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he has been raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to the, to the disciples. Paul then goes out of his way to address the unbelief in the resurrection amongst some in the Corinthian church. In verse 12, he asks, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If that's the case, we are among all people to be pitied. We're still in our sins. And those who have perished in Christ, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. Paul then refutes this lie with our passage here in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And notice this tense, the perfect tense in the Greek. Christ has been raised, referring to a completed past action that still has ongoing, present, and future implications. This is crucial. Because it means Christ's resurrection has effects for us now and also for those who have fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep. Well, if they've fallen asleep during Pastor Timothy's sermon, just wake them up. No, Paul is talking about those who have died. Now, why does he say that Christians who have died have merely fallen asleep? 
This should remind us of our Lord Jesus in John 11. After his friend Lazarus had died, Jesus said in the 11th verse, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And then what did Jesus do? He called out his name, and by the word of his power, he raised him up from the tomb. Paul's making the point that Christians who have died are like Lazarus in that they're just sleeping. Our Lord Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead with all authority and power, and by the word of his power, your soon death, physical death, is just sleep to him. When you're buried and you have your funeral, your body's merely going to bed until the Lord Jesus Christ awakens you. See, when we die, our souls go to heaven with Christ. They're perfected. But when our Lord Jesus comes back, our souls rejoin with our body and we'll be woken up on that last day. So no need to be woke. Because in Christ, we're already woke spiritually, and we will be physically. Not in the sermon notes. Sorry, moving on. But there's a very important application for us. Because all of us have already experienced losing loved ones, or we will experience it. But if they're in Christ, they're asleep. And it struck me a couple weeks ago, preaching at, our mother, at my mother-in-law's funeral, my wife's mom, that the unbelievers who were present were looking for answers. Because who can interpret death but the Lord? It's the Lord who created Adam out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into him. And when Adam sinned, he said, from dust you were created, to dust you shall return. And who else has the answer for death but the Lord Jesus Christ who says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so it's amazing that at weddings and funerals, even unbelievers are more open to the word because the Lord is the creator of marriage and the Lord is the, the resurrector of the dead. But notice, Paul has a way to make his point emphatic and he uses two words to show the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I like how the King James Version puts it more literally, but now, but now Christ has been raised. Now why do I draw this out? Because these two words, but now, are used to mark a turning point in salvation history in the rest of the scriptures. And I just want to look at a few of them briefly to show you how crucial the but nows are in the Bible. Because without the but nows, all are dead in Adam. Without the but now in our text, death reigns. But now, Christ has been raised. So also in Romans chapter 3. Without the but now, the whole world stands condemned before a holy God's law and are guilty. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested since Christ has come and lived a perfect life righteous life, died and been raised. Also, there in Colossians 1.22, we're alienated, far from God, guilty before him, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Recall that God primarily dealt with 
the nation of Israel. There were some Gentile converts in the Old Testament, but with the coming of Christ, his death and resurrection and pouring out of the Spirit, now you Gentiles who were far off have been brought near, but now in Christ Jesus. And so let's praise God for the buts in the Bible and praise God for the but gods in the Bible and also praise God for the but nows in the Bible. Because the but nows point to the fact that what God promised in the Old Testament and bringing about a new creation age of salvation had begun to be fulfilled in Christ. We see this in Hebrews. Although the Old Testament priests continually offered up sacrifices for sin in the Old Covenant, but now Christ has come, the mediator of a better covenant. And perhaps clearest of all there, Hebrews 9.26, showing that but now brings about a beginning of the end. It says, but now he, Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Paul uses the but now to show Christ being raised from the dead is the great turning point of redemptive history. It marks a fulfillment in God's plan. Namely, the end time eschatological resurrection has begun in Christ's resurrection. This is what God promised in the Old Testament in passages like Daniel chapter 12. Beginning with verse 1, At that time Michael shall arise, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of tribulation. Learn about that from Matthew 24. Such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Good verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting eternal life, and some to everlasting eternal contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And so we'll see in a few months in our study of the book of Revelation that these words were sealed and shut up until Christ the Lamb came and opened the seal, unfolding the scroll of God's plan of salvation. And Paul's point is that Jesus has begun to fulfill verse 2 in his own resurrection. He's the first of those who were asleep in the dust of the earth to be awakened to resurrection, eternal life. He's the first of the wise ones in verse 3 who are beginning to shine like the sun. And so it's in this sense that Christ has been raised as the first fruits, as the firstborn son. He's the first of the sons and daughters of God to be raised from the dead. This idea of first fruits goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to the sacrificial system, where the Lord commanded his people through Moses to offer up the first fruits offerings, whether it was grain, or cattle from the flock, sheep, lamb, or wine. The point is that as they offered up the first fruits, they were thanking God for the whole harvest because the first fruits represented the whole shebang, all of what the Lord would give to his people. And so, first fruits point to the fact that Jesus was not resurrected as a solo individual. 
Jesus was not resurrected as a private person, but rather as a representative, as a public person, as the federal head on behalf of all God's people. To use sports terminology, some of our saddened Phillies fans present, the Lord gives comfort, understand. Jesus was not raised as a free agent, but as the team captain of all in Christ. And returning to my illustration in the beginning on homesteading, just like we received our first ear of corn, our first tomato, were the other tomatoes and corn to follow? Was that a different harvest? No, it was the same harvest. This means there's one great resurrection harvest of the sons and daughters of God, and since the firstborn son has been raised at his resurrection, it guarantees all the rest of the children of God must be raised when Jesus returns. First fruits imply later fruits, one commentator says. Look at verse 23. We see each, this word each, but each in his own order. Who are the each? Well, it's Christ and those who belong to Christ. Christ at his resurrection and those who belong to him when he returns. And yet, notice again, it's one resurrection harvest. And I love how Professor Dr. Gaffin says it. His resurrection is not simply a guarantee. It is a pledge in the sense that it is the actual beginning of the general event, the promised general event of the resurrection of God's people. In fact, on the basis of this verse, it can be said that Paul views the two resurrections, Christ's and ours, not so much as two events, but as two episodes of the same event. Beloved, new creation, resurrection, life has broken into the now through the Son's resurrection. The single resurrection harvest is set in motion. The rest of the harvest cannot be stopped from coming forth. The promised resurrection of the dead to occur at the end of the age has begun. And so one of the points of the passage is that the resurrection of Christ is the beginning of the end. And so this idea of Jesus as the first fruits relates to him as the firstborn, the firstborn from the dead, the beginning of the new creation. And it's fitting that as God the Son is the creator of the first creation, he would begin the new creation. It's already shining. And if you're in Christ, you have new creation as well. Talk about that in a moment. This idea of first fruits and its connection for Christ to his people is referring to solidarity. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But Paul wants to show this is not a brand new concept, just like in Romans 5. Adam, who was a type of Christ, was the representative of all humanity. And so, Paul grounds a statement with this four in verse 21, giving us two parallel comparisons with Adam and Christ. The sense is this. Since death is through a man, so also resurrection is through a man. To get more specific in verse 22, just as all die in their union with Adam, their representative, so in the same way, all who are in Christ, their representative, shall be made alive. Future tense. Referring to the future bodily resurrection. This brings into view 
that Adam was the fountainhead of the entire created, now fallen and dying human race, and in the same way, Christ is the fountainhead of his new humanity, his new creation, chosen race, his resurrected sons and daughters. No wonder Paul calls Adam the first Adam and Christ the second Adam. We'll hear about that next week in verse 47. And to wet your whistle for eschatology, Paul actually calls Jesus the last, the eschatos Adam, the eschatological Adam. Why does he call him that? Because this was God's plan for creation all along. Adam, if he obeyed the Father perfectly, overcoming the serpent and temptation at the judgment tree, he is the team captain of all humanity, would have won life and irreversible glory for all whom he represented. And what Adam failed to do, Christ has done through his perfect righteous life, his sacrificial death for our sins on the cross, and his conquering death when he was raised by his Father. He partook of the tree of life, as it were, representing eternal life, and he's already begun giving that to us now. And so if you are in Christ, you already have resurrection life. We can tell that all shall be made alive, there in verse 22, is referring to all in Christ, not every human. How can we tell that's the case? From verse 23, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So the all in verse 22 are those who belong to Christ, who shall be raised up when he returns. And this brings us to the obvious. If you're not in Christ by faith in Jesus, you're still in Adam. And therefore, you are dead even now. Where am I getting that from? I'm getting that from the text. In verse 23, it says, For as in Adam all die, this is a present active indicative verb. It's a present verb. All are dying. In Adam, all are dead. Spiritually and physically. Spiritually, they're already dead. If you're not in Christ, you're already dead, cut off from God with a heart of stone and, ha and hatred of the Lord. And although you're still alive physically, the principle of death has kicked in. Like me, you're going bald. Like me, you're getting weaker, and the body begins to break down. The principle of death has begun. In Adam, all are dying. And isn't that interesting? The contrast between those in Christ who even have died physically, they're sleeping. See, in Christ, even though we're in a body of death still, we're alive by the Spirit. And even when our body dies, we're just sleeping. But if you're in Adam, you're doubly dead. You're dead spiritually. And the second death, the lake of fire, Revelation 20 and 21 says, is awaiting. And so flee. Turn to the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge death is within. Not just physical, but spiritual death. And he will forgive you and join you to himself. And I want to now spend a couple of moments touching on the fact that in Christ, we already have spiritual life. Notice this verb that Paul uses in verse 22. In Christ shall all be made alive. This verb Paul uses elsewhere means to give life. All shall be given life in Christ. Paul uses this verb later in the chapter for the resurrected Christ who is now life-giving spirit. 
In 2 Corinthians 3, 6, it is the Spirit who gives life now in the new covenant. And so Paul's point is that the life that we will have in its fullness when Jesus comes back at the resurrection has already begun. Turn now to John 5. And the Lord Jesus Christ makes clear that just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And the question is, Jesus, when do you begin to give life? And further in the passage, it's clear in verse 24, whoever hears his word and believes has eternal life. If you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, eternal life has already begun. Eternal life's to know the Lord. But then our Lord Jesus goes on and makes clear resurrection is twofold for his people. The first resurrection has already begun. Notice in verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. That hour has already begun now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Who's he referring to? You who have put your faith in Christ, being born again and regenerated with a new heart. You've already heard Christ's word and been raised up from spiritual death to spiritual life. And he makes a distinction between that hour that's already here in verse 25 and the hour to come in verse 28, which is not here yet. Look at verse 28 from John 5. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Our Lord is not teaching salvation by works there because apart from him, we can do nothing. But united to Christ, who is the only good man, who has done good, he empowers us by his spirit to do good. And so in Christ, we already have resurrection life, and it's only those who have been born again and tasted and seen that he's good and partaken of Christ who will be resurrected bodily. Let me say that again. If you haven't been resurrected spiritually yet, you won't be resurrected bodily unto life when he comes back, but unto judgment. There's no resurrection of life in the future unless there's resurrection of life in the now by faith in Jesus Christ. Or I should say by the Spirit who gives you faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, the Son gives life in two stages. The already not yet resurrection that we have in Christ has already begun by being born again in this life, in regeneration, having newness of life in Christ. We're already new creation. And then when Jesus returns, physical resurrection life. And so this leads us to an application. We want to continue to grow in Christ who gives life. Let us continue to drink of his word. Let us continue to feast on his word, the manna from heaven. Because the Lord Jesus says it's the spirit who gives life and his words are spirit and life. And so how do we grow in conformity to Christ, the life giver? By feasting on his life-giving word by the spirit and partaking of the means of grace in the church, the Lord's Supper, prayer, fellowship. And so our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection guarantees yours, but your spiritual resurrection in this life guarantees resurrection at his coming.
And this brings into view that the resurrected Christ has already begun to usher in a kingdom of life. This is our second point. The reign of Christ guarantees death is destroyed. Just as the resurrection of Christ guaranteed our future resurrection, so the present reign of Christ guarantees death will be destroyed. To summarize these next few verses, Christ's resurrection and our future bodily resurrection is one giant destruction of the satanic kingdom of death. Now why am I mentioning kingdom all of a sudden? Because there's a bunch of kingdom words. Notice, five of them. Those in gold referring to the kingdom of Christ in his present reign. Those in red referring to the demonic kingdom of Satan. The word rule, authority, and power are used elsewhere by Paul, like in Ephesians 6, for the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, connected to the devil there in Ephesians 6, 11. And so notice that in Ephesians 6, 12, rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers are referring to the various ranks of demons in the kingdom of Satan, under Satan, who's called the prince of the power of the air. Recall that the Lord created Adam and gave him dominion. Adam, as a vice king, was to spread the kingdom of God. But when he sinned, he forfeited his reign to Satan, sin, and death. And so the rest of Scripture tells the story of how if you're not in Christ, you're a part of this fallen world system. Satan is your king. Satan is the ruler of this world, our Lord Jesus says in John 12. As Jesus said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Cain, you must rule over it. Does Cain rule over sin? No, it's the other way around. Sin rules since the fall. And Paul will even say, death reigns since Adam. Satan, sin, and death reign over all of humanity. And beloved, this is why our Lord Jesus Christ came. The Son of God appeared for this reason, to destroy the works of the devil. The fulfillment of the Genesis 3.15 promise that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that's already begun. And so, the rule of Satan, sin and death, is axed out by the Lord Jesus Christ, who has already begun destroying the works of the devil when he ushered in his kingdom in his first coming. And so, Satan's works are X'd out, or better put, crossed out through the work of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has begun to destroy the works of the devil. And this raises the question, how come in our passage the destroying work of the Lord Jesus is future? This brings into view the already not yet kingdom reign of Christ. Notice that. Jesus destroying Satan's kingdom of death happens when he returns. In verse 24, the word to destroy is used for the way Jesus will have finally completed the destruction of every satanic rule and authority and power at his coming at the end. And in verse 26, Jesus destroys the last enemy of death 
when he raises his people from the dead at his second coming. That's not happened yet. So, has Christ begun his destroying work? Or is it future? Yes. And this is why learning eschatology is so important. Because the already destruction of sin, death, and Satan is so applicable for our lives, brothers and sisters. And yet, Jesus isn't finished. At his second coming, he'll complete the destroying of Satan's works, which he began destroying in his first coming. But let's bask in the things that Christ has already destroyed and begun destroying, which have so much to do with you and me, as we heard in our confession of sin from Romans 6, 6. Since we've been united to Christ, our old man, who we were in Adam as slaves to sin, has been crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be destroyed. Same word from our passage. So also, through Christ's death, the devil has already been destroyed. Christ began the head crushing of the serpent. And through his resurrection, notice it says, Jesus has destroyed death in his resurrection. And so he'll certainly bring that destruction to completion when he returns. He'll vanquish death, last of all, as the last of his enemies. These, other wor these words that we see in our text are also found in Ephesians 1. Jesus, in his resurrection and ascension, is already exalted over all rule and authority and power. And so we should not think of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light as two forces like Star Wars, where the force of evil and the force of good are a battle. Ooh, who might win? Tune in next week and let's see. No. Christ has already been exalted above. And notice, these things are already put under his feet. As it says in Ephesians chapter 1, so it says in our text as well. Because Jesus has already began destroying death, in his death and resurrection, he'll completely vanquish death when he raises his people from the dead. Well, how about in the meantime? Notice it says in verse 25, he must reign. This word here, reign, is the word for king as a verb. Do we ever use the word king as a verb? King me. In checkers, we use it as a verb sometimes. Paul's using the same word, kingdom, as a noun, as a verb. Christ must reign, he must be king, and it's in the present tense. In other words, Jesus Christ is already reigning now. He must reign, verse 25, until he's put all his enemies under his feet. It does not say that once his enemies are put under his feet, then he will begin to reign. That's putting the cart before the horse. Rather, his present, ongoing, already kingdom reign enables and causes all of his enemies and your enemies to be placed under his feet. And I love the shorter catechism, which brings this out so well, that all our real enemies are Jesus' enemies. His enemies are our enemies. And our Lord must defeat them. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. You mean we're a part of the all things put under Jesus' feet? Yes. 
He subdues us to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 26. So, beloved, what issues, what sin struggles do you need Christ to subdue? What are certain things you've not handed over to him yet? Kind of like a parent with his two-year-old. Timmy, hand it over. He can either hand it over kicking and screaming, or he can hand it over very nicely. How much more so will the Lord Jesus Christ not allow us to hold on to idols and things that destroy our Christian life? How much more will the Lord Jesus continue to subdue us and anything in us that's not of him put under his feet and surrender? See, the resurrection of Christ marks the beginning of the end of death's reign over God's people. It's the beginning of the end of sin and Satan's reign over God's people. So if sin, death, and Satan doesn't reign over you, who does? The Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why we've taken the all-millennial position, which says Christ reigns from the whole time between his resurrection all the way until his second coming, our resurrection, the now-millennial reign of Christ, or the but-now millennial reign of Christ. And so the first and second coming of Christ are all about resurrection, his and ours, and it's linked to his reign as king. And notice, Paul strengthens his argument. It's an absolute fact that you and I will be raised from the dead when Jesus comes back because God promised it to his son in the Old Testament from Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. We see Psalm 110 there in golden, and we see Psalm 8 there in whatever color that is there. I think that's teal or bluish. Jesus' destruction of death in his resurrection, completed in the total vanquishing of death in our resurrection, is based on the promises of God the Father to his Son in Psalm 110, verse 1, there in verse 25, where God says he's put all Christ's enemies under his feet, and that includes the last enemy, death, and only the last Adam can overcome the last enemy. Further explained in verse 27 in his quotation from Psalm 8:6, God has put all things in subjection under the feet of the Son of Man. This word, to put in subjection, is found six times in 27 and 28. It has to do with subduing. It has to do with being made subject, being put under the feet of Christ in submission. And so in Paul's broader discussion with the Corinthians, he's saying it's impossible for there to be no resurrection because God will be faithful to his promises he made to his son in Psalm 110 and Psalm 8 to subdue all his enemies under his feet. Under his feet. What's with all the feet language? Under his feet is a metaphor from the Old Testament for a conquering king. Consider whose feet it is. Consider what his feet look like now in his glory. What do his feet have? Holes. And bro brothers and sisters, this is why we're so amazed with the unfolding story of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. Because the promised offspring of the woman 
who had crushed the head of the serpent, does it by his heel, the heel of his feet being crushed, by the holes from the nails going through to destroy the works of the devil. And so in summary, Christ has been raised from the dead as the guarantee of his people's resurrection. And this is prophesied and promised in the Psalms. But it was also promised in eternity past. When God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planned the covenant of redemption, God's plan of salvation before the foundation of the world was that God the Father would exalt his Son as Savior King. He'd give the Son a kingdom people whom the Father has chosen for him to redeem. And the Holy Spirit would take the redeeming work of Christ and apply it to them, joining the kingdom people to the king who rescues them from the kingdom of Satan and at his return consummates, completes, perfects the kingdom. And that's our third point. The return of Christ to consummate his kingdom. And so perhaps you have learned an eschatology view that's fairly complicated. There's multiple second comings of Christ. Secret rapture, then a tribulation, then Jesus comes to set up a literal thousand-year reign, then there's a rebellion from Satan, then Christ comes again and again, again in final, final judgment. Our passage helps to show it's a lot more simpler than that. When Christ, who has reigned since his resurrection, comes back, then it's the end of all things. When he raises the dead and consummates his kingdom, giving it back to God the Father, who first entrusted it to him. Then he makes a new heavens and a new earth, bringing his people into never-ending fellowship after judging the wicked. This is the consummation, brothers and sisters, that we're longing for when Christ returns. Look at this emphasis here in verse 24. Christ will deliver the kingdom to his God and Father. You mean Jesus gives the kingdom back to his Father? Yes. After completely destroying the reign of Satan, sin, and death on behalf of his people, he'll hand the kingdom back to his Father who first entrusted it to him. And he'll, he will hear the ultimate well done, good and faithful servant. Since God the Son took upon the form of a servant to glorify his Father and save his kingdom people. I don't know about you, but verse 27 and 28 seem strange at first. We've already seen from the quotations of Psalm 110 and Psalm 8, God the Father is the one who put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But notice how Paul goes out of his way to be super clear in verse 27. It is clear, it is plain, it is evident. God the Father is not a part of the all things that are put under Christ's feet. God the Father does not get subjected under Christ's feet. Okay, Paul, it's sort of obvious. Why are you really going out of your way to stress this? And, no, no, and notice, he's not done. He even wants us to be clearer. It's the Son who's subjected to the Father after he comes back, finishing his kingdom work. What are you talking about, Paul? When Christ has completely destroyed all his enemies, the Son himself will joyfully be subject to the Father. What is going on here? 
I thought the Son, the Father, and the Spirit are equal. They are in their godness and their divinity. But Paul wants to emphasize the obedient, faithful submission of the Son of God and his work as Messiah and Savior, as the God-man, to emphasize his kingdom of salvation is complete in its consummation. And yes, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in glory, honor, and power as God. They always have been, always will be. One God and three equally glorious persons. Yet in the plan of redemption, the Father commissioned his Son this glorious task of inaugurating the kingdom in his first coming and consummating the kingdom in his second coming. And the Son has completed that work. And he says, Father, look, I'm done. And how does the Father respond? Son, you will judge all, not me, so that every created human being and angelic being will see your glory. Father, here's the kingdom for your glory. Son, thank you. To your glory. To your glory. To your glory. And the Spirit is at work to cause it to happen for his glory as well. Paul talks about this in other parts of the letter that Jesus as Messiah submits to his Father. The head of Christ is God. We are Christ's, 1 Corinthians 3, 23, and Christ is God's. He's making a point about Jesus' faithfulness to complete the work of salvation. And now, if you could bear with me in closing, I have a weighty quote from one of my favorite biblical theologians, Herman Ritterboss, but I think it really grasps what's going on here, so bear with me. This transfer of kingship and this self-subjection of the Son to the Father does not mean that from that moment on, he, Jesus, is really no longer spoken of as the Son. Or that no power dominion is any longer due him. Nope, that's not what Paul's talking about. Just as he, as the Son was in his pre-existence clothed with the glory of God, so also the honor and glory he received at his exaltation are not of a temporary nature. He'll always be glorified as the exalted king. And as we'll see in Revelation 21 and 22, the glory of God is the lamb. Christ's kingly power need not end at the point in which he delivers back, transfers to God the subje subjection of all powers as a thing accomplished by him. The delivering up of the kingship of Christ to the Father and the subjection of the Son to the Father throws light on the fact that Christ has completed his task in perfection and that the glory of God, no longer clouded by the power of sin and death, can now reveal itself in full luster. Ritterboss is helpfully touching on what the purpose is for the Son delivering back the kingdom to his father and being subject to him. And that's how our passage closes. Why does the son deliver back the kingdom to the father and be subject to him? So that God may be all in all. And we can tell from other passages, this is referring to the glory of God shining forth at the Lord Jesus Christ's return. That's why we pray yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. It's for the glory of the Father. And so, beloved, rejoice that you've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
You've already been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's beloved Son, who has already defeated sin, death, and Satan on your behalf. And when he returns, we'll see the completion of that defeat. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we worship you as the resurrected King of glory. We thank you that you powerfully reign over us now, not as a mean tyrant, but as a loving king. Lord, we long for your return. Strengthen us by the same spirit who raised you from the dead with your life-giving word until you return to show us your glory forever. It's in your name we pray. Amen.